Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome back to New Books in Anthropology on the New Books Podcast Network. I'm Jacob Doherty, the host for this episode. And today we're talking to Constance Smith, currently a UKRI Future Leader Fellow at the University of Manchester and the author of Nairobi in the Making, Landscapes of Time and Urban Belonging, published in 2019 by James Curry. The book asks how ordinary people in Nairobi make a place for themselves in a city caught up between the remains of empire and the promises of a hypermodern global future. And it argues that the everyday practices of living, maintaining, and imagining are what make the city. So thank you very much for joining us, Connie, and welcome to New Books in Anthropology. Thank you for having me. Before we get to the book itself, can you tell us a bit about yourself, how you came to anthropology and some of the origins of this project? Um, So my background before um, I started doing anthropology was I did an undergraduate in history and I focused on African history and that was at Cambridge. And then after that, um, I worked in Nairobi for a number of years as the research assistant on different kinds of academic projects, history, anthropology, archaeology. Um, And then... um, I went away from that for a bit and worked in um, museums and galleries for a while and did a master's in museum anthropology. And then I came back around to um, to anthropology, thinking about uh, very much think, interested in material culture um, and design. And so I did my PhD at um, UCL um, in, the, in anthropology, but in the section on uh, visual and material anthropology. Um, so I kind of bring together interest from um, African history, particularly particularly the production of history, uh, but also architecture, design, and try and bring that into my approach to anthropology. Um, so this project was really came out of those interests and my experience of living and working in Nairobi. And it was really about an interest in what happens to architecture that's out of its own time. So if we kind of think that uh, many architectural projects or, or designs um, are addressing problems of their of their moment or interests of their moment, and uh, sometimes are um, uh, manifestations of certain political ideologies or uh, p- political moments. Then, what happens once those moments are over? But people are still living with those buildings and those spaces. So, particularly in this case, it's about that. Um, aftermath of British colonial architecture in Nairobi in the in the post-colonial city and whether or not it still has any impact on how people live their lives. And so the book really begins with this kind of image juxtaposing Kenya's Vision 2030 program with the dilapidated ruins of some of Colon- uh, Nairobi's colonial era infrastructure. And it was written in written and researched in what you call the meantime or the, the period of anticipation and uncertainty around this Vision 2030. So can you tell us a bit about that and how it informed the context of your research and writing? Yes, so um, I I was very interested in this neighbourhood called Kalaleni uh, before I um, arrived in Nairobi to start fieldwork in 2013. Um, and this was a, an estate that was built in the 1940s as a British colonial project, um, and it was designed specifically for African families. And so I, I traced various kind of connections that as far as I could um, into the estate. And then when I finally got to visit and speak to people, um, I realised that what everyone was talking about was the possibility that the neighbourhood was go- going to be demolished 
in some form and what form that might be, they didn't know. And this was very much part of um, a larger project to re-envision Nairobi and in fact Kenya as a whole under um, the Kenyan government uh, development blueprint called Vision 2030. And underneath, sort of sitting under that umbrella is the Nairobi Metropolitan Plan, which uh, really is a kind of infrastructure-led uh, mega project to um, put in loads of investment in infrastructure, urban transformation to drive economic growth and um, turn Nairobi into what they described as a world-class African metropolis. So very much in the kind of um, idea of, of, of global cities and this idea of the world-class city. Um, so I found that um, this sort of meantime that people were we're living with this uh, in this aftermath of a colonial urban housing project, but very much also thinking about their futures and whether or not they could sustain their position within this estate. And so what I found was that people were not seeing these as two separate things, but their relationship to the past of the neighbourhood um, very much inflected how they saw the future and their idea of whether or not they could continue to belong to to Nairobi as a city. And your ethnographic attention centres really on the kind of everyday experience of people rather than focusing primarily on the planner's gaze or all these kind of state projects. Maybe can you say a little bit about your research process and the kinds of materials you're able to access and the conversations that you draw on? Yes. So, um, yes, so my interest is very much in how Vision 2030 manifests itself to people in Kalaleni or to to um, in everyday life in Kenya. So I didn't, although I did go to City Hall, to Nairobi City Hall, and I did have encounters with various planning officials and various um, state officials working in different aspects of Vision 2030. It was um, I was I was much more interested in this kind of um, what I call the sort of view from the streets in Kalaleni, which is trying to see well, you know. How does a resident in Kalaleni experience um, this official yet very opaque form of urban planning and urban renewal? So I, I wasn't, um, I wasn't trying to sort of balance out these two visions by doing um, you know, ethnography with the planning department and ethnography um, in Kalaleni, but very much keeping that that focus. So I lived with a family in Kalaleni and. Uh, through my connections and friendships that I built up there, and particularly working with the, the Kalalenia State Residents Association, I followed their encounters, which um, were very diverse. So sometimes um, it was, um, you know, happening through kind of quite formal meetings or information sessions. Sometimes it was this very drastic appearance of an image, in particular a billboard that suddenly appeared outside uh, Kalaleni, which... Um, had this very dramatic uh, a sort of skyscraper on it and was labelled New Kalaleni, and that was the kind of first image that some people had encountered of a possible future. Um, but also all kinds of other forms of rumour and speculation and ideas about uh, what participation in a new Kenya might look like. So it was a quite diverse mix of, of encounters. And conceptually, you draw on a lot of co- concepts developed in environmental anthropology in your analysis of urban space. Can you say a bit about the idea of landscape in particular and how this figures in your work and what aspects of the city it helps you to interpret? Um, So I'm very interested in traces and remains and what we inherit from the past, but the ways in which we come to those traces and remains in new ways. Um, And so thinking about a city as a landscape made over time as this kind of asynchronous and um, asymmetrical um, process of making, constructing, demolishing, unmaking of politics, planning, migration, new forms of technology and technique that come into that allowed me to to think about the city as somewhere that's made over time rather than... um, that's sort of made through everyday life. And so this is a kind of combination of ways that, you know, a DIY home improvement project can be just as significant as a radical urban planning project in terms of how, um, of the effects it has on on some people's everyday life. Um, and so this idea about 
the kind of taking this more long durée approach to thinking about accumulating materials and traces um, is quite well established in um, environmental history and in landscape archaeology. So we think about the work that has been done by people like uh, Chris Tilly would be a good example. So he revisits um, you know, ancient landscapes, or maybe that could be Bronze Age landscapes or places like Stonehenge, which you know date back thousands of years, but we continue to um, encounter them and interact with them in new ways. So you know, just this week, the idea about what does it mean to dig a tunnel under Stonehenge is a whole new kind of site of contemporary politics that brings in all kinds of new ideas, but is still very much animated by the ancient landscape. And so I was really interested to bring some of those ideas into thinking about about cities, which are very uh, obviously very very complex places, um, but which have this kind of churn to them, both material, social, political churn that um, that means that cities develop a, a kind of character over time. Um, and I think it was quite interesting to bring that to Nairobi because it is a, a relatively new city, so um, it really began as. Um, a staging post in the construction of the railway that went from um, the Indian Ocean to Lake Victoria. And although it was a sort of pre-colonial site in the sense of um, it was a marketplace mostly for, for traders, there wasn't any um, real infrastructure or any buildings there. And so that really began with a British colonial process. And so I was interested to think about, okay, well, what, what could this approach to, um, to landscape bring into the city, how would that give a new angle on ideas around upheaval, anxiety, um, planning, and the idea of belonging really, and how you make a, how you relate to the material world around you. So, so you mentioned already that um, architectural projects like this are uh, built at a certain moment in order to resolve particular social issues um, of their day. So what were some of the kind of initial ambitions of Kalaleni as a housing estate and what, what social issues was it intended to address and what did this kind of initial ambition tell us about colonial rule at the time it was built? It comes out of a very um, interesting period of uh, colonial governance, not just in Kenya, but, but more broadly. Um, but in Kenya, this took the form that in the earlier part of the 20th century, um, African presence in the city was very tightly regulated so the city was conceived of as primarily a white space with some provision for um, uh, Asians primarily migrants who've come from India to work on various colonial projects with some provision for them to work as as traders but any African presence was was very tight, tightly regulated and they really were conceived of as migrant laborers who might come to the city to work on a particular project but you know mostly as, as manual labor um, and then they would spend the rest of the time in what were called the, the reserves, the rural areas. And so they were assumed to have this village existence, but then might come into the city for, for periods of time. Um, but unsurprisingly, that um, was very difficult to control from the colonial perspective in many ways. And so what happened was that um, many people started to to construct uh, informal housing. And um, there was the emergence of what the uh, Nairobi municipal government called the African villages, which were seen from the British perspective to be deeply problematic. They were seen to be um, sort of vectors of, of, of crime, of potential urban unrest, um, and of also of disease. So conforming to you know, many of the things that we now regard as sort of colonial tropes around hygiene and, and security. Um, and so by the 1940s, there have been a number of, um, of quite serious um, strikes and other forms of um, political mobilisation in the 1930s. And so by the 1940s, the colonial authorities were um, keen that there should be a different type of strategy to, um, to the city and a different type of, of management. And so this became a much more um, paternalist and interventionist idea in the design of everyday life. And so Kalaleni really comes out of that, um, of that period, which was to the idea that if you can create a, a stable um, and very uh, controlled, but also um, 
sort of self-sufficient urban neighborhood, then you could also you could use that to both regulate colonial subjects, but also to inculcate certain values around um, around class, around um, uh, property ownership, or around um, sort of ways of being and aspiring that um, fitted within a colonial idea of what proper domestic and social life looked like. So it was very much an intervention into into the design of everyday life. And uh, Kalaleni was modelled on um, the garden city um, style of urban planning, um, which figured in many places um, around the British Empire as well as elsewhere. But it really comes out of a, a late Victorian um, British um, planning strategy to have these very self-sufficient um, neighbourhoods. So they would include... Um, things like a school, a village hall, green spaces, playing fields, perhaps allotments, a clinic, as well as houses. Um, and so this was intended to be a much, rolled out at a much wider scale in Nairobi under a very big um, Nairobi plan that was developed in the late 1940s, but eventually only really two neighbourhoods, Kalaleni and Ziwani, were actually built. Um, and so it has this, um, so what it looks like is, is a, it takes a, a kind of um, spiderweb design. So at the centre is um, the social hall, and then there was a small park there, a nursery, a library and a clinic. And then there are radial streets going out, or like spokes really going out from that centre. And then those spokes are connected in this kind of spiderweb shape by pathways. And then small stone bungalows are arranged around um, that spiderweb shape. So there was a lot of um, open space between the houses, which is very unusual at the time. Um, but the open space actually was very tightly controlled. So one of the first things that many residents who were who are older and had lived in that colonial um, period would tell me is that, oh yes, there were lots of gardens, lots of flowers, but we were never allowed to go on the grass. So even though it was, seen as this um, very important that people had access to these green spaces and it was the idea of a garden city uh, that actually even um, using it was was very tightly controlled and so the that and that kind of idea of um, producing a particular kind of life um, also extended to the way that residents themselves were managed so they had to sign up to very strict um, tenancy agreements which included things like the compulsory registration of any overnight guests. Um, you weren't allowed to um, to fence in any of this outdoor space. It had to remain accessible or open. Um, the, f the compulsory fumigation of houses. So every, I think it was every six months, residents would have to take everything out of their house and then um, municipal uh, workers would come and fumigate the house. It was kind of very intrusive in terms of this um, there was no sense that you could put down roots within this space, even though it was uh, seen to be a somewhat um, prestigious place to live because it was very um, orderly, clean, well-designed. It had these facilities, but at the same time, it was deeply regulated in this um, quite invasive way into everyday life. So you write about both how residents fit themselves into and also reworked some of this kind of regulatory and disciplinary aspects um, of the estate. So, so what was it like to actually live there and how did people um, bring life to the, this colonial plan? Well, one of the things that um, that emerges very quickly is that when you sort of arrive on the edge of Kalaleni, it looks quite run down. Um, so many of the... Um, Many of the houses uh, look very dilapidated. So many of them have problem with their roofs, or um, they're very. There's lots of mud everywhere. So there's been a real retraction in the past um, twenty to thirty years of municipal management in the estate. So although it still persists as um, well, this is something that some residents would dispute. But it still, at some level, exists as a public good in the sense that. Um, it, there is a, supposed to be a level of municipal management of this estate in the line of um, of a public housing project, um, but that's really been um, neglected, and so residents have really had to take on for themselves the management of their space. So, for example, the 
in the immediate post-colonial period, all the houses um, were fitted with, with rudimentary plumbing. So everyone had a sink and a toilet. Um, but very quickly, uh, the water flows as Nairobi water has been a problem in many ways at a much bigger scale than just in Kalaleni. So now they're in a situation where water very rarely runs in these pipes. So people have had to um, develop ad hoc uh, water systems. So water usually comes in every day by uh, by carts and people will pay for jerry cans of water that they then use uh, to flush these toilets, to use in the sinks that are still plumbed in, but there is no water within them. Um, similarly, the retraction of um, uh, state or municipal management has meant that people can do all kinds of other things with their houses. So one thing that uh, is very obvious when you go into the estate is the is this uh, juxtaposition of the colonial stone bungalows with corrugated iron um, structures that are dotted all around what was this open space that no one was allowed to, to walk on. Uh, those corrugated iron structures, or mabatis as they're known, are usually called extensions in Kalaleni. So they may be extensions to the main house to, so that people can expand their living space, but they've also been constructed as forms of um, rental income. So behind almost all of the houses now, the, um, the resident of the main house has constructed maybe six or seven of these corrugated iron structures and they rent those out informally. So it's an interesting position where the residents of the main houses are tenants in that they still pay some form of rent to the city council. But there are also landlords of these corrugated iron um, buildings. So that creates um, different kinds of dynamics. So you, it tends to happen that the residents in the main houses have um, are usually from families who've lived in the estate for a long time. Um, but the tenants in the extensions, have, there's a much higher turnover. And so they may be just coming in and out very um, rapidly within the estate. In in the second chapter, you write that you came to see this kind of decay of the estate, not as something associated with loss and oblivion, but as accumulation. Can you say a bit about how you came to this view and what you how, how you situate it within the anthropology of ruins and remains? Yeah, so this was something that um, came about quite gradually through my experience of living in Kalaleni. And I felt that... Um, I mean, there's been a lot of work in um, anthropology in recent years. I mean, probably most prominently, Anne Stoller's work on imperial debris, also Gaston Gordillo on rubble, around thinking about the afterlives of buildings. And this process of, and Anne Stoller argues very strongly that we shouldn't talk about ruins as these sort of fixed sites of, um, you know, aesthetic appreciation or as sites that are fixed in time, but ruination is this ongoing process which continues to be vital and effective and to animate um, all kinds of um, continuing ways of relating to those places. So I was very interested in a lot of that literature, but at the same time, much of that scholarship sort of implies that these are places that are empty of people. And so that obviously didn't apply to Kalaleni, where the population is not just still present, but in fact, around three times what it was in the colonial period because of this building of extensions. So on the one hand, it was this very dilapidated um, place that um, was in many ways disintegrating from what this colonial uh, estate had, had originally been. But on the other hand, it was actually... Um, becoming more, both more in terms of people, but also in terms of constructions. Um, and also because with the uh, retraction of um, management from the city, it's meant that there's a sort of literal accretion or build up of, of material. So rubbish is very rarely collected. Um, there's lots of lots of residents are very consumed with the management of dirt. Um, so the houses, um, because they're old, are often quite leaky. Um, and so the kind of management of and cleanliness of the of the estate and of the of the buildings was very important to many people. Um, and because the paths have really disintegrated, so there's no more there's no more asphalt on the paths. There's a, whenever it rains, there's a huge amount of mud, um, and this mud became this kind of 
uh, very important substance within my field work. People were consumed by getting rid of the mud. Who was responsible for the mud? Why was there mud now when there wasn't in the past? And um, I started to think about this process of accumulating dirt and detritus as a kind of of history. So in the sense that it becomes this um, material trace of lives that are lived, of things that have happened or indeed things that haven't happened, such as um, forms of, of official management. Um, and this really came home to me at one point when during the rainy season, I was trying to pick my way across a particularly muddy area of the estate. And it was really full, of, not just of mud, but of all kinds of dirt and ooze and rotting food. And it was quite a, a horrible corner of the estate um, in that sense of of rubbish. And I found what I was doing was was stepping from one hillock to another um, across this mess. And then I realised that what was holding these hillocks together were these little strips of fabric that had become worked into the ground. And that these strips of fabric were the um, the leftovers or the excess from um, an informal businesses that were occupying that area edge of the neighborhood in these Mabati structures. And they, were, they use these strips of fabric, they're recycled clothes, and they use them to stuff sofas and other kinds of, um, and chairs and upholstered furnishing as a kind of, um, yeah, ad hoc stuffing, basically recycled stuffing. And so I was thinking, well, this is really interesting that these bits of fabric have got into the ground and are forging this kind of new topography that's meaning I can walk across this area. And I was thinking, well, there is this kind of literal sense of so going back to those ideas around landscape and accumulation and how the traces and remains of our lives shape landscapes in all kinds of ways. I started to think, well, this is really fascinating. This is a literal example under my feet of a new topography, if you like, emerging. Um, and so that started to make me think a bit differently around um, what Vision 2030 meant and the way that residents were feeling very, um, you know, they were incredibly anxious about this uncertain project, which was huge, looming, being discussed everywhere, but really no details were ever being um, officially circulated. And I started to see that you know, part of what they were concerned about was this, this cleansing of a history of their position in Nairobi and um, uh, and their lives as well as their houses um, themselves. And so although this dirt was, you know, horrible and problematic and much disliked by many residents, there was also the sense in which residents had themselves left these traces on the landscape. So the houses you know, bore the traces of generations of family life and the idea that they were going to be demolished was about much more than just the loss of shelter you know it was about much uh, larger loss of um, their position uh, within Nairobi and their sense of contributing to the history of Nairobi. I don't know about you but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook that's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh never frozen meal is chef crafted dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week including calorie smart protein plus and keto. These are two minute meals Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com nbn50 and use code nbn50 to get 50% off. That's code nbn50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50 percent off and that's really the, the focus of chapter three where you, you focus, talk a lot more about the kind of practices of history making that people are engaged with on the estate so why did the past matter so much to residents and what were some of the the kind of central practices of history making that they were engaged with and engaged in and uh, the kind of key moments in these historical narratives so this is where um my interest in in history is not so much as it is in history as the um the formal discipline of history 
but the way in which history is something that we live with and do in everyday life. So I'm, I'm very interested in what I call practices of history making. So the idea that um, if we think about what we leave for the future, you know, that in itself is about leaving a record. Um, and what, this was really inspired by, um, by residents themselves. So I very quickly understood that um, their sense of responsibility to this estate should partly be engendered by the retraction of um, municipal maintenance, which meant that they had to do everything for themselves. So rather than being tenants, they were very much acting as owners of their houses. And so they were responsible. If anything broke, they had to fix it. Um, you know, they were responsible for sorting out much of the infrastructure, even the public infrastructure within their estate, and, you know, fixing it in whatever ad hoc way they could. Um, that this had given them a sense of ownership within the estate, which was you know, a sense of ownership that was much more about labour, longevity, maintenance than it was about anything to do with purchase power. And I came to see that this was both influential in terms of how they saw the history of their estate, but also about how they related to this future um, possibility of regeneration. Um, so perhaps just one story I could tell you is about um, something that the chairman of the Residents Association said to me. So we were on um, a walk around the estate one day and we stopped outside the social hall and we looked up at it and he was pointing out to me how there were loads of tiles missing from the roof and glass missing from the windows. And he sighed and said, you know, Kenya grew from here. And I said, wow, that's a kind of dramatic statement. I was like, so wow, what do you what do you mean by that? And he started to tell me about how from this estate had come all kinds of independence um, era leaders, politicians, um, lawyers, business people who had um, who had been born and raised in Kalaleni and had gone on to be fundamental really in the early independence years in the 1960s and 70s. And they had a very strong sense that this estate had nurtured those people so that they'd taken this um, this place that was about uh, colonial authority, about developing you know, compliant uh, subjects, trying to make kind of model colonial subjects. And they'd really sort of subverted that in many ways. So the social hall in the 1950s quickly became dubbed uh, the Houses of Parliament because it became a prominent meeting place for nationalist um, uh, activists and early political movements. And so there was a sense that, you know, Kalalenia was central to the beginning of an independent Kenya. Um, and that was something that I'd never seen or heard in any history of the independence of Kenya or the history of Nairobi. Um, and I started to realise that residents were themselves engaged in these very um, particular practices of history making. So they themselves spent a lot of time in the archives, um, trying to trace the designers of the buildings, um, trying to understand what had happened at independence, about why were they not receiving any management. And um, one of the things they were really consumed by was the very legitimacy of the Kenyan government to regenerate this land at all. Um, and so they disputed the idea that um, that Kalaleni was publicly owned, that it did belong to the government. And this for, this narrative took many forms. Um, so some people said um, that at independence, um, when because the British built this estate, at independence, uh, this these houses should have been given to the residents themselves. Other people said, well, um, the title deed is still with the British or even it still belongs to the Queen and Nairobi City Council were only meant to be managers. And so some people argued also that the rents that they were paying were in fact uh, kind of mortgage payments. And so that after 20 years or some people said 30 years, that these these houses would go to the residents themselves. So this is very kind of alternative um, history of the estate, history of Nairobi and in fact history of independence that was taking shape. And this was uh, important to them, not just because um, of what it said about 
the significance of the estate and the history of Nairobi, but also because this gave them incredible leverage about what happens to the future. And so they didn't see past and future as separate at all. That, you know, if they could show that they had these long-standing um, rights to the houses, then that would obviously give them greater um, form of, uh, of voice and of capacity to uh, to challenge what they saw as a possibility that the Kalaleni would be demolished and that they would have to uh, go elsewhere or that their interests would never be fully met by the government. One of the, the really interesting concepts you develop throughout is this metaphor about felt and felting to make sense of the texture of this history and the way it uh, takes shape in the materiality of a state. So can you explain a little bit about felting and what it helps us to understand about time and materiality in the city? Hmm. So this comes back to my interest in um, in design and making. Um, so making is in the title of the book, Nairobi no, in the Making. Um, and making is a word that we obviously use every day without, um, it's a very mundane word in many ways, but I'm very much thinking about it in terms of making in the sense of um, of a process of making, of being a maker, um, whether that is you know doing a DIY project, whether that is history making or all kinds of ways in which we have this kind of quite tactile and haptic relationship to to what we do with our lives. And that could be making a project or it could be making a book or whatever. Um, so out of my interest in that, um, I spent, um, I'm going back to my work in, in museums, I spent some time with um, designers and makers and I'm very interested in their working process. And so we often think about, um, say, a furniture maker as someone who has a particular craft that, you know, maybe um, it's a tradition that they've learned how to work with wood or how to make um, things by hands that has a kind of history of technique and craft. But actually what I began to realise is this is very much about, it's a very much a forward, so yes, you need that technique, yes, you need that skill, but this is a very forward-flowing um, process. It's an embodied action that's sort of improvisatory, open-ended, and it's really a form of problem-solving. And so it has this kind of sense of um, this drawing on uh, work by people like Tim Ingold and Trevor Marchant that making in this sense is a generative forward flowing process. And in um, Tim Ingold's work, he talks a lot about lines and entanglements. And so he really draws, he has this idea of lines as this uh, generative flow that moves forward into the future and that this entanglement of lines is um, is how things take shape and emerge. Um, and so I was very struck by that and thinking about, well, in much of the work on all kinds of work about cities is that people often talk about the urban fabric or the way that things are woven together in the city. And I was thinking, well, what is this metaphor of fabric really doing for, um, for the way that we think about cities? and um, particularly weaving. So if you uh, look very closely at a woven material, it's actually this very structured um, fabric where it is, um, you have the warp and the weft, and they're set, there are two sets of parallel lines that are set perpendicular to each other. And the warp is strung vertically, and then the weft weaves in and out um, of the, the strands on the warp. And so really, if you look up very, very close what you see is a grid and that to me seemed absolutely not the kind of urban fabric that I was talking about in Kalaleni the idea of a grid of something regimented linear um, that what I was seeing in Kalaleni was something very different um, and so I started to think about what kind of lines was I seeing in Kalaleni so one thing that happened as over the decades as people have really re-scripted their neighborhood away from this a uh, very organised colonial project into something that's much more makeshift and, and ad hoc is this reconfiguration of lines. So the old uh, colonial paths that were built have often been shut down uh, by um, uh, someone's put up a fence or a hedge or a new building, um, and that's just cut off. But what have emerged are these much more organic desire lines, as they're known, that move around, uh, weaving in and out of these kinds of spaces. And I was thinking that 
these lines, the paths really that have taken shape, you know, they're a record. They very require people to walk them every day in order to 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 leave that mark on the land. And so that kind of helps you to think about um, the way that this other kind of life leaves its mark within the neighborhood. And then I start to think like, okay, well, if we think about fabric, what kind of fabric is this? Is this really evoking? And that, that and what I thought about was, was felt. So felt rather than um, this very structured process of weaving is all about friction. And um, so you take um, usually wool and you activate it and um, by, by rubbing usually, and by rubbing it, um, you gradually mat it together. And so the fibers of the fabric cling to each other, a bit like a sort of Velcro effect. And you get this very unstructured, um, uh, but very dense and richly textured fabric. And so that for me became this much more uh, useful way to think about, about the city as a place of, of friction and entanglement. And so friction, both in the sense that, of course, um, Cities are politically fractious. I mean, Nairobi, as much as anywhere, is a long history of um, very violent conflict um, around lands. Uh, there's been a huge amount of dispossession and um, infringement and demolitions of, of all kinds of different housing projects, particularly affecting um, those at the lower end of the economic spectrum. And so that sense of something that evoked friction as both uh, problematic but also friction is also what's essential to to movement if you think about the wheels of a car on a road you know a car only moves because of friction from the tires on the road and so it was really that metaphor that helped me to think about um how to yeah how to think about a city as taking shape in a much less structured way thanks that's yeah i found that to be a super generative metaphor throughout um throughout the book that you return to um it's also um, while while you sort of focus primarily on Kalaleni itself, it doesn't. It's not a kind of uh, ethnography of this as an island. You sort of trace out some of the connections to elsewhere's that uh, that animate uh, life on the estate. So in in chapter four, we go beyond the city to to describe how people's relationship with rural landscapes um, remains central to their projects of urban self making, um, even after their death. Right. Um, because of the way that burials are part of the, the kind of key practices relating urban and rural worlds. Um, so you said that you hadn't really intended to study this at the outset, but but rural funerals really became an important site of your research. So why was that and how did you go about that aspect of the research? Um, so this goes back to another kind of um, legacy of the colonial period. So as I, I mentioned earlier, this idea that um, that Africans didn't belong to Nairobi, that they belonged to rural areas, um, has had all kinds of interesting um, afterlives um, up to now and, and will continue to do so for some time, I think. So uh, this sense that... Um, you might be born and raised in Nairobi, but you also have this connection to a rural community somewhere else is still very, very prevalent for many Kenyans, and particularly in Kalaleni, which um, is predominantly uh, ethnically Luo and Luya. And there are two ethnic groups that come from the far west of Kenya, from the border of Uganda and, and Lake Victoria. Um, and um, in all kinds of ways, people have maintained these um, relationships to rural land. And so that both is about an idea of, of Luo heritage and about a relationship to another kind of landscape that's a rural, predominantly agricultural landscape. But that's also, it's not entirely nostalgic in the sense it's also deeply connected to politics and Kenyan politics is very ethnically based and seeks to mobilise those um, connections to, to land in all kinds of um, of new new ways every election cycle. Um, so for people in Kalaleni, though they might um, have grown up there, there is a strong sense that they also have this other connection. And particularly for older people in the estate, there's a sense that they wish to, that Nairobi is not a place for old people, that um, when you get old, it's your time to go back to this rural landscape. And they always talk about going back, even if, they might have been born in the city. There's a sense of return that is quite um, 
fundamental in many ways to what it means to be to be Lua and Luya. Um, and that is something that requires um, a high degree of, of labour and work in all kinds of ways. So some people might inherit ancestral land in, in Western Kenya, but even to maintain that land is it requires you know lots of travel and maintaining this, this rural kin connection um, and set of relationships. Um, so it's not something can be assumed. It requires a lot of labour as well as a lot of investment of resources. And these days, particularly as, as Kalalenia has become um, a poorer and poorer neighbourhood, many people don't can't afford to maintain those connections anymore. So they might have um, lost their access to ancestral land in different ways, um, or they um, they just might not be able to afford to keep it up. But after the one point when everyone desires to to go home is to be buried. So the ideal might be to retire there die there and be buried there but if you die in the city there's a very strong sense that people want to be buried in western Kenya and so there's a lot of um, emphasis put on that and lots of sort of community fundraising that will go into everyone contributing a certain amount of money to be able to send the body home for burial um, and so I because um, this planning happens in in Kalaleni this became a sort of part of my fieldwork and um, for all kinds of reasons, death was quite present in my work. So Kalaleni has, there's, for, so people don't have good access to healthcare. Um, there's a lot of um, um, extrajudicial violence. As um, there's a lot of ways in which um, people's sense of opportunity has been very, really shut down. And so, sadly, death was actually quite a prominent theme in my work in a way that I didn't expect it to be. Um, and so I was interested to trace this connection and to travel with people back to Western Kenya and to understand this connection a bit more. So that both included participating in some of these um, uh, rituals and logistics around um, death and dying, but also uh, tracing connections to um, to Kalalenians who had retired, in inverted commas, uh, back to to Western Kenya. So I spent some time um, with um, a couple of people from Kalaleni contacting some people and we, we we drove, we did a bit of a road trip around Western Kenya and including going to Rusinga Island on Lake Victoria uh, to track down some people and to speak to them about their relationship now to Kalaleni and what they recollected and how they thought about that their former home in the city now that they were based in a rural area. And it was really revealing actually to think about how these um, you know, what are often described in much of the historical literature on Kenya is these very uh, enforced colonial relationships between uh, rural and urban communities, how those had taken on new kinds of meaning and were kept vital and important in people's lives in 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 new ways and were still very fundamental to um, the kind of life trajectories that people wanted to have even if they couldn't um, manage to make them come into being in practice. You pay a lot of attention to the changing materialities of this rural urban connection and, and of burial in particular so can you outline a little bit about how these um, funerary practices are changing and what, what effect that's having on both rural landscapes and generational transmission? Yes so there's um, there's a, a long a long-standing um, idea that, from the rural perspective, that life in town is, you know, I think this is certainly not just a Kenyan thing, but, you know, something that pops up all over the world, that life in town is somehow kind of glitzy and glamorous uh, compared to life in the rural areas. And that's certainly not true in most cases, but there is also a sense of uh, responsibility, I think, that uh, many people in um, in Kalaleni had for sort of, uh, they felt responsible and also wanted to make themselves appear to be successful, that life was going well in the city. And so there was a sense of um, uh, display and prestige about returning to um, rural life that shows that you know, this is an urban life well lived when you can come back and invest your money in building a stone house uh, with, um, 
you know, perhaps a plastic corrugated roof um, with a concrete foundation, um, and that there's a, a sense in which the materials that you choose, so new materials like glass, concrete, cement, brick, um, have uh, a certain aura and um, and prestige to them in a way that the older materials of mud and thatch uh, do not. Um, and so dotted all over the landscape are these uh, more contemporary or more recent materialities that have really shifted uh, the relationship between between death and land in quite particular ways. So um, historically, Luo will be buried within their domestic compound. Um, and the idea would have been so this relationship between land and self and home is um, is materialized in the process of decay of going back into the land so a body would decay into the soil and the mud and thatch of a house would also decay and go back into the land and so that space would be understood as a grave site of um, of a deceased person and that um, that land couldn't uh, really be reused but because of this process of decay there was a sort of generative uh, sense in which you know, bodies and house are literally making the land so again we're coming back to this idea of the traces that we leave behind us um, what's happening with um, new forms of construction is there's um, this process of decay has really been stopped short so concrete is obviously um, incredibly slow to decay will last for generations um, what's also happening is that people are now buried in um, plasticized coffins. The bodies themselves, because of this process of moving them from rural areas to, uh, from urban areas to the rural areas, the bodies often sit for a long time in the morgue and then go through, um, will go through a process of embalming to enable this transportation to happen. So the bodies themselves are full of all kinds of chemicals and kind of plasticized to a certain extent themselves. And then they are buried in um, concrete graves. So the graves themselves are also not decaying. So you get this sense of um, so the remains of these, of these um, urban figures in the rural area are quite um, ambiguous. In the one sense, these, um, these new forms of construction materialize or can materialize uh, success or achievement or a life well lived. But then they also get uh, caught and stuck and obstruct the landscape in particular ways because they don't decay. And so in the case of a bad death, so the case that I give in the book of um, a man who, or a, whole, a series of people in one family who all died in mysterious or violent circumstances, that the remains of their houses become these kind of monuments to disaster. And there's a sense that um, this disaster is um, materialized in the, in the remains of their of their housing and that that can contaminate future generations in the sense that uh, this process of decay of going back to the land and of um of renewal has been thwarted in various different ways so going back to kalalini itself in in chapter five you focus on um the ideas about urban security and how those are manifest architecturally and you write about how the estate was built at uh, a moment with a particular kind of security discourse, but how that has changed over time. Um, and you relate the kind of security architecture and, and discourse on the estate to other kind of bigger security events like the, the Westgate attack in 2013 and um, Obama's visit to Kenya. So can you say a little bit about the kind of relationship between these um, much more prominent visible kinds of security and the the security instances that you that you witnessed on the state and how those are kind of architecturally manifest in place. Mm, so um, it's in some ways quite um, a cliche to speak about Nairobi in terms of safety and security. Yeah, it's a kind of trope of of a sort of expat uh, anxiety about living in Nairobi. Um, but I think that it is actually it's incredibly important to all kinds of Nairobians, rich or poor, and it materialises in very interesting ways. So I think it was just the week before I um, I left London to travel to Nairobi to do the field work that uh, the Westgate Mall attack happened um, in 2013. 
Um, and so when I arrived in Nairobi, this was very much in the foreground of people's conversations about living in and moving around um, the city, but also about how they are seen in the rest of the world. So partly bit as a legacy of um, the post-election violence that happened in 2007, 2008, there's a kind of ready-made trope of Kenya as this place of violence, just ready to explode um, at, at any time that uh, you know, re-emerged in places like CNN um, and on the BBC as well. Um, and Kenyans are very critical of that, but they're also very aware that security in their city is a huge issue. And so one of the things that really struck me um, was the way that what we might call more everyday forms of um, insecurity around um, violence, um, shootings, robberies, things like that, um, how many people use the language of terror to explain them. So uh, one incident that I explain in the book around um, uh, some so-called thugs who were fleeing a robbery nearby and uh, running through Kalaleni and were engaged in a shootout with the police. And a resident turned to me and said, oh, these people are just terrorists. And so there's a sense in which these two, uh, one, this kind of global spectacle of terrorism and insecurity uh, gets scaled down to explain um, these uh, so-called everyday experiences of violence. And I was very interested in that. And so I was thinking more broadly about how life in Nairobi is, has always been about managing insecurities. It was a colonial preoccupation as much as it's a preoccupation now. And that that materialises in the fabric of the city and the way it's designed. So um, colonial um, authorities were really obsessed with visibility and surveillance. And so part of their concern with the so-called African villages, the informal settlements, was that they were not you know, not legible. They couldn't be understood. You couldn't go there and see what was going on. And so the construction of places like Kalaleni were very much premised on these sight lines. And so being able to surveil what was going on in the neighbourhood was very important to a colonial sense of, of security. Um, residents today um, have in many ways sort of turned that inside out in that um, because of the increased insecurity with the lack of um, sort of reliable uh, policing as well as um, city management, um, they've taken security on as something that they do themselves, and that generally entails putting up fences. Uh, and so people in Kalaleni have constructed quite elaborate security um, systems outside their houses. So it might be barbed wire fences, it might be burglar doors, uh, it might be all different kinds of forms of enclosure. So that really shuts down those sight lines um, that were embedded in the estate at the start. But what's also really interesting about um, the forms of uh, security provision that they've been made is that they also have around them a, um, a sense of prestige or aspiration to it. Um, and I think this sense of exclusion and exclusivity and the aesthetics of security is a really large part of um, the built environment of Nairobi in all kinds of different ways. So in the more uh, wealthy areas of the city, you would get um, the security features are advertised as, um, you know, on a, you know, on property websites, it will list the kinds of security features that there are, sort of high walls, um, gated entrances, guards, these kinds of things. But then they will also be made to look uh, sort of uh, aesthetically pleasing as well. So they'll be surrounded by beautifully planted flower beds, uh, topiary. Um, so they have this kind of um, way in which they've been aestheticised. Um, and I think that sense that exclusion and exclusivity go together is um, the sense of who gets to be inside and who gets to be outside is quite fundamental to how people have taken on their sense of building the city for themselves. 
And so then chapter six kind of continues this theme about security and insecurity through the, the kind of uh, return to Vision 2030 and the sorts of um, demolition that it seems to threaten. And you start chapter with the image of the billboard that you mentioned before that appeared all of a sudden in Kalani. So can you can you just describe a little bit about what it showed and the kind of city that it promises and how residents made sense of the sudden appearance of this, this image uh, welcoming them to a new version of their own neighborhood? Yeah, so this um, billboard, which was really huge, just appeared literally overnight in December 2013, um, uh, just on the the boundary wall of the of the estate, and it appeared with no warning. No one in the estate had any information about what it depicted. Not even the residents' association. And so, what what was on the image was this. Um, so digital rendering, an architect's rendering of high-rise apartment blocks, and they're arranged around this very large highway. And then in the foreground, there's a, a big roundabout, and in the middle of the roundabout is a sign that reads Caribou Kalaleni, which Caribou is, is Swahili for welcome. So welcome to Kalaleni. And the, right across the top of the building, it says Mabadiliko Yetu, which translates as our changes the idea that this is some kind of uh, inclusive urban future um, and so these high rises are, um, I think it's about 13 or 14 stories high um, and they really dominate the scene and there's very tiny pedestrians in the foreground um, and so this kind of um, dramatic vision of a particular future was very much in contrast to the decaying uh, reality that that surrounded the billboard. Um, and so unsurprisingly, this provokes all kinds of um, questions and concerns about what it was that was going on. Um, and so some people were very, you know, this clearly wasn't um, a scene that uh, seemed to be aimed at the people who currently lived in Kalaleni. It seemed to be about a different kind of lifestyle, a different kind of, of resident. But what was really interesting was that uh, for many Kalalenians, they didn't dismiss this, um, this vision outright. They said, lots of people said, well, this is actually really beautiful. You know, that's the kind of city I would like to live in. Um, and uh, there was kind of much of the way they talked about it was in terms of a sense of, uh, of aspiration and of and of progress, um, and so this was quite striking to me that you know these people didn't these people I was, had spent so much time with didn't really feel necessarily uh, literally excluded from this, even though it seemed to be not the kind of place that they that would be aimed at them. Um, and so I started to look at this more broadly. And so there's a much larger um, sort of visual realm um, of Vision 2030 that's in circulation. So these very, very dramatic uh, renderings of um, satellite cities, the two main ones being Konza Techno City and Tartu City, which were proposed as these um, sort of gleaming um, enclaves, really, uh, of a new sort of huge skyscrapers, uh, very sort of technology driven, uh, and that these would be urban projects, urban mega projects that would herald Kenya's arrival on this global stage. And they're kind of modelled on um, cities like Kuala Lumpur or Dubai or Singapore that have really seen that sort of very dramatic revolution in terms of the way that they position themselves globally. Um, so there's this kind of sense that um, this. This was enticing, but yet also anxiety inducing. So people thought, well, this looks amazing. That's the kind of Nairobi I want to live in. But then they also were quite aware that this, in all kinds of ways, even if they were promised this future, it probably wouldn't come to pass, that there would be various ways in which they would be excluded from it in the way that uh, they well knew that uh, Nairobi planning and um, urban management has long, um, has long sought to do, really. Um, and so this was really about uh, thinking about different kinds of um, of future um, and this sense about how so it comes back to that sense of, of um, you know, how can you strategize or leverage your position to to find a way to make the best of this future. So I was very interested in this idea um, that comes from um, 
Hannah Elliott, but also Jamie Cross's work about um, economies of anticipation. So it's a sense of anticipating the future and how even if Vision 2030 never gets built and there's still none of these projects have come to fruition, um, they still animate certain ways of living towards the future in particular ways. So they have an effect even if those projects um, never are built. Thanks. That, that that reminds me so much of the, uh, the story you see about these kind of architectural renderings that I've I've seen myself in Kampala and Abidjan that seem to circulate much more widely, even as the materialization is quite uneven. Um, so thank you so much for taking the time to talk um, today. It's been a real pleasure to talk and to to learn more about the book. Before you go, could you tell us a bit more about um, the research you're currently doing? Yes, absolutely. So I. Um... Last May, I started um, a new research project as part of my um, UKRI Future Leaders uh, Fellowship. And it is looking again at the afterlives of architecture, but looking at some more contemporary structures. And it's a comparison, really, with um, between Nairobi and London. Um, so... I've been looking at issues around um, high-rise architecture and particularly what happens in the aftermath of um, tower block disasters. So on the same day that the Grenfell Tower fire happened in London, a tower block collapsed in Nairobi. And I was very struck following um, these two cases about how similar much of the language was in two very, very different cities, but there are all kinds of similar themes coming to the fore around urban injustice, about the unreliability of materials, about um, corruption um, and sort of vested interests. And so this project is really looking at um, the afterlives of um, those two uh, disasters and thinking about how, you know, even in their uh, failure. How do architectures still um, influence and shape what comes afterwards? So thinking about new kinds of political activism, new conversations around um, materials, about risk, and also about trust. Thanks. That sounds like a, a fascinating project. I really can't wait to see to see what comes of it. Um, thanks again for taking the time um, to talk. It's been a, a real treat to hear about to hear about your work. Thank you so much. It's really been a pleasure. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.